everybody, welcome. I'm Rainy Knudsen. I am the founder and publisher of Glass Tire. We are so glad you're here tonight, this evening. Um, just a quick announcement before we get started. There is a book signing afterwards. We have 900 Memes, which is Catherine Opie's newest book, most recent book. Yeah. You have a couple like right about to come out. But anyway, the most recent book until the new books come out. Uh, it's a wonderful portrait of a person through a house. And it's actually Elizabeth Taylor's house, the actress, uh, right around the time she died, I think, yeah. the actor. Uh, and then also we have two of Eileen Miles's books, a book of poetry and also the mem uh, memoir, Chelsea Girls, for av available for sale. Please come, please visit, please say hello to the speakers, buy a book. Uh, so that's directly after the talk, out in the lobby. And before we get started also, I'd like to thank a few people. The Alley Theater. The Alley is wonderful. Thank you, Dennis Draper. Uh, this theater was just redone, as was the Upstairs Theater last year, I think they reopened it. So it's brand new, high tech. It's been such a pleasure being here. If you haven't been to the Alley in a while, I encourage you to check out their programming and come down here. They've been wonderful to work with. Uh, I want to thank all of our underwriters tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Knoll Furniture, Carol Piper Rugs, Copy.com. We love you guys. And um, also, especially Bridget and Patrick Wade for their support, their generosity, their generosity of spirit. This would not have happened without them. Uh, I want to thank our board of directors, which is great. We have a wonderful board of wonderful people. Yes, absolutely. It's a labor of love. Uh, and I want to thank our staff, and they're, they're coming in right now, but we are, we are small but mighty. We happy few. Christina Reese, our editor-in-chief, is here from Dallas. Uh, yes. Ariana Roche is our associate publisher. Brandon Zeck is our assistant editor. Uh, and we're all here, so thank you all for all of your work on everything that we do. Um, this is our third off-road speaker conversation. Uh, and I've done this before, so uh, for those of you who are familiar with Glass Tire, please hang in there with me. But for those of you who are not familiar with Glass Tire, we are an online magazine of visual art in Texas. We're the oldest online-only art magazine in the country. Uh, this year, we celebrate 16 years. It's our sweet 16. And we, since the beginning, I mean, a lot has changed in the last 16 years, but since the very beginning, uh, the mission has not changed, which is to expand the conversation about visual art in Texas. And so I encourage you to look at the site, uh, read the news, read the articles. We publish day in, day out. Uh, if you're looking for something to do, we have listings of all the visual arts events in every city in Texas every night of the week. We have a YouTube channel with our videos, our wildly popular top five videos, which come out every Thursday. Uh, and we just launched a SoundCloud channel with our new podcasts. Ariana Roche does uh, Not a Hobby, where she interviews artists about their day jobs uh, that they keep so that they can make art, because making art is not a hobby. And uh, Christina and I just started a new bi-weekly podcast called Art Dirt, which is about topical art events of the week. So, and we'll keep that going, probably bring in some guests on, on that. So please check out SoundCloud, YouTube, the site, um, for those of you who don't know, I always get asked about the name Glass Tire. Where does it come from? It is an homage to Robert Rauschenberg, who was from Texas. He was from Port Arthur, like Janis Joplin, actually. And at one point, he made these tires cast in glass, and they were very beautiful objects. And I loved the tension inherent in the glass tires. And 
Um, we do a lot of driving around Texas. We drive the highways and byways of Texas a lot. And so that whole idea of the open road and blue skies and open highways and the intersection of ideas and that uh, road will, that will lead you anywhere is kind of at the heart of everything that we do. And so the glass tire feeds back into that idea. When we started to do a speaker series a few years ago, we titled it Off Road because for us, we were going off road off the internet. But I also like the idea of off road, you know, the road off the beaten path, the road less traveled. The whole idea was to bring the great minds of our time to Houston, great artists who people here might not otherwise be able to hear from and have a dialogue with them in real space, real time. And I'm not sure that we can think of two speakers who have taken the road less traveled more than Catherine Opie and Eileen Miles. They are truly independent thinkers, great minds, and in both of their work, they have uh, gone the independent route, uh, both in, in photography with Catherine Opie and with writing with Eileen Miles. Catherine, as I said, is a photographer. She, like all great artists, sees the world a little differently and takes that distillation of the world and presents it to us in her work so that we too can see it. And Eileen Miles, as a writer, I think does the same thing, looking at the world, distilling it in poetry, in her case, um, and in a very great American tradition, I think, of un, uh, un, um, unembellished, straightforward, honest, visceral poetry uh, presents ideas that are instantly recognizable. And they both create in their work the aha of recognition, which is kind of what it's all about. And the last thing I'll say about them is that I think that we have two quintessentially American artists here. And I mean that in the very, very best sense of the word and most idealistic sense of the word in that they are both uh, tolerant, democratic, honest, and have great generosity of spirit for their, or in their investigations and explorations of we the people. So with that said, it is my very great privilege and pleasure to present Catherine Opie and Eileen Miles. Thank you for bringing us here, really appreciate it. Eileen reminded me that this is our third conversation together now. Right, so we've been gigging off-road for a while. Yeah, <laughs> we've been like, going off-road in, uh, in interesting different ways. And also want to acknowledge and thank the Fairbanks for allowing me to sleep in their beautiful carriage house. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let me say the same to Tim Crowley, wherever you are. I'm like in his crazy mansion, and I have extra bedrooms for him, but he's like, stuck tonight. <laughs> Talk to me after the show. Oh, there you go. I got a room for you. <laughs> I got pinball machines down below my room. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I think that one of the things that, you know, we, we have uh, shared such common ground in many different ways, but also paths that... Uh, obviously traverse in kind of different directions. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we should start with is these two images behind us. And like, who are these kids? Uh, like, who are these kids? Yeah. I mean, these are both uh, childhood images. I'm under mine. And uh, that is uh, my first self-portrait that I made at the age of nine. 
and I had written a book report on Lewis Hine, and I had asked my parents for a camera because I wanted to be a social documentary photographer. So this is my first self-portrait, and it's pretty baby butch. I mean, it really, it doesn't get more baby butch than this, uh, except for the flowered pants. It's really funny that I'm wearing flowers tonight totally. as that well. That was not planned? It wasn't planned That's at so all. Great. I know, it's kind of crazy, right? But the best thing about it is you can't see it, but my zipper's half down in that image. So this is in front of my house in Sandusky, Ohio, where I lived until I was 13, and then I moved to uh, Poway, California, which is North County, San Diego. And where are you in this? Well, I want to ask a question, though. How is that a self-portrait? How did you do it? Well, I had a camera on a self-timer. That is so... How old were you? I was nine. That's so sophisticated. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm like... That's well, I, I, yeah. think I still couldn't probably figure out how to... No, it was, it, was a, it was an old Kodak Retina. Yeah. And it was pretty awesome. And uh, my grandfather had a dark room in his basement in Sandusky, Ohio, with the, the old kind of enamel trays and stuff. And wow. I would go down there with him. And so, uh, yeah. And I, I got in trouble because I, uh, one time, I think I was about six or seven, and I really liked cameras. And my mom was... Uh, my mom made a lot of home movies, mm -hmm. uh, like 8mm, Super 8. I, we have a huge library of home movies. Um, but I took apart one of my grandfather's cameras because I wanted to know how it worked. Wow. And yeah, I got in a lot of trouble for that. Okay. So. <laughs> but also that you had a grandfather who... Um had a, had a dark room. I mean, it was just like, you have it in your jeans. Yeah, no, there was, uh, they, you know, my grandfather owned this company called Opie Craft in Ohio, which was back in the day where you bought basswood boxes and plaques, and you kind of, uh, it was all of the, during that period of decoupage, and uh, he was also started praying crayons in Sandusky, Ohio, so I grew up in this kind of really interesting, uh, in the heart of Sandusky, this um, all these artists around, and my uncle and my aunt are also artists, so there was a certain permission mm -hmm. to be an artist, but at 18, when I wanted to go to art school, they weren't too sure about it, and I had to get my real estate license. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I had to do something oh, practical. What did your, well, so your grandfather, right, it wasn't, photography wasn't his business. It no, was, but he had a printing press in his basement. His basement was cool. It had a lot of tools, uh -huh. thus taking apart the camera. There was little screwdrivers. Right. Incredible. <laughs> Don't wow. leave the kids in the basement alone. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So where are we here? We're on uh, Swan Place in Arlington, Massachusetts. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm very excited about the fact that I've got this, like, Double jean western. I got cowboy boots on. I got a jean jacket on. I got and I remember that. And being, do you do you have braids? I have braids. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Total braids. So it's just like I remember that being my absolute favorite out, outfit when I was. I mean, I was probably about eight, mm -hmm. I think. And that's um, my brother to my left, and that's Dennis Delay, my first one of my first best friends, um, to my right, and that's my sister Nancy. Under. But the street was um, not paved. You know, it was sort of like it was a dead-end street in, like, coming off the center. And the thing that's weird is that I've, um, I've lived per persistently on dead-end streets and oh. dirt roads, and, like, I've reproduced it, like, without really thinking about it. You know, like, I had a place in, in P-Town with my girlfriend, and it was a dead-end street, and it was Massachusetts, and it was a dirt road, and, and then... See, in California, we would call those cul-de-sacs. Because <laughs> California is so French. It's never a dead-end street. 
it's a cul-de-sac. That's really uh, It's funny. a whole thing that happened, you know, yeah. it's like, and you want a cul-de-sac because yeah. you never say dead end. So it's so interesting that, you know, again, the variations of words around that. In Massachusetts, I think we would think it would be pretentious to say cul-de-sac. Like somebody would say, what's that? You know, uh-huh. So you didn't want to be caught being a show-off kind of. It was like a sort of a class thing. But the, the um, thing I think I, th- I think about mine's it, mine's. it seems so social. I remember myself being a really quiet kid, and I feel like I look like the center of the gang. And well, you're protective. And, you're holding in a very like the the arm across. Yeah, yeah it's very. Yeah, it, you're and you're obviously really happy. I can't believe how. And happy I don't I know am. if I'm happy. <laughs> It's questionable whether I'm happy. I'm, well, you're I'm def- at work. You're, you're at work. You can't be happy. A guy got to. I got to do You know. Yeah. It's it's a curious thing because I'm obviously proving to you that I'm strong. And you're masculine. And I'm masculine. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I remember being not a bully, but I remember because <laughs> I would never think of myself as a bully. But I do remember. Um, that uh, having an older brother that was uh, fairly intense on me, that I had to be strong. And uh, I remember if uh, boys messed with me in the neighborhood that I felt like, okay, I I can mess with them back. Nice, nice. I hit back. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, now we don't hit. (laughs) (laughs) Who was we in that sense? We, we, everybody. I mean, kids. Like, Oliver would be horrified at the idea of getting in a fist fight. My son's 15 years old, and I don't think he's ever been hit, nor has has he hit anybody. And I think that that's really different from the kind of time period we grew up in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was totally about, like, going up to boys that I didn't even know and going, I can take you. Like challenge, I would actively challenge them, to, and I would just get my ass kicked. Yeah, no. but it was just I was very excited about fighting. Yeah, oh. no fighting. It's you know, it's the old western movies and stuff. Right, right. So in the winter days. Yeah. So anyway, well, should we? Yeah, good. We have images going and now. Now it goes. And now it goes. This is just going to go behind us, and we're just going to uh, change the conversation about other things. Right. So, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm, I'm sort of on two. I'm on two things. One is that I'm writing a screenplay for Chelsea Girls. So Amazon has bought my book and, and for a movie. So that's very exciting because when I wrote when I wrote the stories that make the book, I was really thinking. I mean, I was a poet who was writing a novel for the first right. time, and I thought. Um, I don't really know how to write fiction or a novel or prose even exactly. Um, but I thought I totally grew up watching TV. I mean, I was just like a kid during the gold, what seemed like the golden age of old TV, you know, when nobody knew what TV was and it was all these vaudeville people. So I, I felt like I knew how to watch, I knew how to tell, describe a show and I love movies. And so what I, I wrote the stories and I wrote the chapters as if they were just kind of, I just thought I can, I can remember a place and I can visualize so it. So they're and visual, I, yeah. yeah so I remember that about the book, that's very visual. I haven't, I'll, it'll be interesting. I'll have to reread it before watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but do you think of it as, I mean, one of the things that, you know, is flashing behind us is ideas of portraits that I made in the early 90s. Chelsea mm-hmm. Girl, was that 88? Well, it came out in 94, 94. But, I, but I was writing it in the 80s about the 70s. Yeah. And then maybe a, bit, a little bit later, too. So it's sort of like it, it kind of covered 20, 70s to 90s. 
mm -hmm. sort of. And when were the, the, the portraits that you became first known for? 89, the being and having the mustache series. Wow, wow. Which, uh, which yeah, it was, uh, I've been called sir my entire life. Maybe it's because I wore flowered pants and made muscles and had a short <laughs> haircut as a young girl. Uh -huh. But I've always been mistaken as a boy and mm -hmm. been fairly comfortable with that, I suppose. Right. Um, um, I, you know, it's weird. I ha I've had the same experience. I mean, I, growing up, I felt like I was a boy. I thought I was a boy. I prayed to God to wake up as a boy. And I definitely had the experience of, like, you know, going to the bowling alley with the kids in junior high and walking into the, like, I had a Sassoon haircut and walking into the ladies' room and having some guy chase me for going into the, being a guy going into the ladies' room. So both of us, I mean, I want to get back to the work yeah. in portraiture, but both of us had these experiences of, of, masculine self-perceptions or trans, and yet neither of us are trans, and no. have considered transitioning. We're going to laugh, that maybe the, the, a, well, perhaps a dying breed of Butch Dykes. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, here we are. We should be both wearing dusty cowboy boots right now because it's, it's right. kind of like that. But no, it is interesting because both of us have had an enormous amount of people and these early portraits were beginning you know, that was a time period in which a lot of my friends were transitioning, mm -hmm. and it was right on the heels of incredible loss in relationship to AIDS and how that decimated our community. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that kind of the transitioning of my friends, um, because the, the first kind of wave of people who were transitioning in terms of my community of uh, butch dykes becoming men, they actually didn't become straight men, they became gay men. And I always found this kind of interesting, and I, and I argued this with Dorothy Allison. Dorothy Allison was like, no, actually it was, it was Gail Rubin. Gail Rubin's like, you're completely wrong. Gail Rubin's an amazing writer in terms of doing historic writing around sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, and I came to her with this theory. I said, you know, I feel like part of the transitioning to gay men is out of this incredible place of loss. And to replace them. To replace them to a certain extent. And, I, and I, it was like, you know, in the same way that the portraits begin to capture this very delicate time, but also incredible political time within our, our community. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this, this thing where it's like, you know, as, as leather uh, dykes, we weren't allowed to go into the gay male leather bars in San Francisco. That it was actually like, you know, and I remember, mm -hmm. you know, I remember cruising around with Nayland Blake and other artists in, in like parks, you know, where we'd be drinking Jägermeister. Don't drink it, it's really bad. <laughs> we were young and stupid, really young and stupid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would go and I would like pretend that I was a gay man and I was like cruising these guys with Richard Hawkins and Nayland Blake and these other artists. And you'd always hear this from the bushes, it's a lesbian, <laughs> you know, kind of out there. And then, but then it like then it happened where all of my friends transitioned to be leather men, uh -huh. and then they were able to have access to, to these unknown areas that I still didn't really have access to, and it was so mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, kind and of, lots of them, but also lots. I think lots of trans men have just transitioned to a world of male privilege. Yeah. Too. No, yeah. very much so. Short men. 
but yeah. <laughs> like, it's like totally not allowed to be a transgender. <laughs> no. No. It's like there's no tall lesbians turning into tall men. It seems like it's little guys. Hans. I don't know. It's just, yeah, I know a few. Okay. I mean, yeah. Anyway. So, but you know, when I when I think about this body of work of that, what I what I first saw of yours with the mustaches, it's they're so interesting because they're like very fleshy, incredibly mm -hmm. flesh, fleshy self portraits, um, and, and they have that like incredible black boundary sort of, and they they both look like they're they're right on the cusp of like high art and criminality. They also look like well, mug mu shots. potential mug shots, yeah. yeah. No, and it was about the idea of the gaze being back to uh, the audience, and that I, you know, through the years I've had lots of fights with male photographers of like, why do the women always stand naked, looking off like this? You know, it's like nobody like so so often. If you look at the history of photography and especially how women are portrayed, very rarely are they like facing the viewer. So with being and having, it was this idea of doning this kind of uh, masquerade of masculinity, right. but that you automatically viewed them as male. And and actually, I. The first time that they showed it in a small museum in Santa Barbara, I had this woman who was an intern walk up who had lived with them for the whole exhibition, which is three months. And she said, you know, I think I know some of these guys in the photographs. And I said, they're all dykes with fake mustaches. And, they were, and she was absolutely shocked. But you can see, because I'm shooting with a 4x5 camera, you can see the webbing and the falseness. But it's automatically the gaze and the reading of the facial hair that is just it's male. Right, right. It doesn't go beyond that. But then it does for the queer community. Mm -hmm. So that's the other kind of uh, interesting thing that happens with work. Mm -hmm. And I think both of our work, and it's a question that I've gotten, mm -hmm. who do you make your work for? Mm -hmm. You know, who's your audience, right? This is a common question that is also like an art school question. It's like, well, Who's your audience? You know, and I always never ask, actually ask my students that question. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, as you become a public fear, figure, my audience was myself and my friends at that point. But I think audience changes as you move through your work and it becomes more public. I mean, I've always sort of, I mean, I definitely make my work for myself, but I also sort of always presume that I'm a multiple. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever I am, there are many of me even if I don't know them yet, you know? So it's sort of like I want to, as a way in which, I mean, I guess it's one thing in my poetry and it's another thing in like fiction, but like when I wrote Chelsea Girls, I felt like there's a world that I walk in and it's a female world, it's a queer world, it's a world of poets. I feel like I'm in all these places and I know that I'm not alone in all these places, but there's some way in which in all the representations of the larger society, nobody sees these places and they definitely don't see them together. They don't mm -hmm. see the, the poets meeting, the queers meeting, the women. The, there's, so many, there's so many aspects simply of female reality still mm -hmm. that are just, I mean, the first time I saw um, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I saw something that I had been dying to see for so long, which was a woman in a stall putting her hand underneath and passing toilet paper oh, yeah, yeah. to the next. And I thought, I have never seen that in a movie or a TV show. Huh. And it so pissed me off that a man got to represent that for the first time. Right. No, it's a common thing because you also never know how to ask the person next to you. Yeah. It's like, um, hmm. Uh, 
do you have toilet paper over there? Knock, 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 knock. It's like, there's like, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, we've got a situation. <laughs> and I remember being a child and seeing this really scary lady hand with like red nails and holding toilet paper. It was like, I wasn't sure I wanted that toilet paper. It was just, it was a real engagement with femininity in a way too. But it's, I think there were just so many, it's like when I think about writing, I think about all the places I, th I just feel like being an artist for me is this combination of being lonely and being really social, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm kind of wanting to put those, I'm wanting to kind of like sort of hold on to my loneliness, but then kind of multiply it in a way. And, and I think in a weird way, it's sort of like when you talk about the places you've been, it's sort of like, you know, it, it, you're then seen suddenly in a right. different way. And, and, you know, you create an audience. Mm -hmm. So you kind of multiply as an artist and you multiply as a person, you know? Um. I like the idea of multiply. Like, I really don't think about me multiplying. I think about me in terms of personas. Like, Bo with a mustache is a persona who would do certain kinds of things. Or there's the quiet Kathy that loves the edge of the water with the 8x10 camera just watching things slowly and making these really quiet photographs. And then there's the super political side of me mm -hmm. that has to bear witness and what is the idea of bearing witness. And then also what is it to put myself in places that I'm not necessarily within my comfort zone, but that it creates, creates a larger idea of democracy. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it as not like multiples, but I always say in interviews that I'm not a singular identity. Right. That right. to only think of me as a leather dyke is actually really small-minded, that right, I'm right. so much more than that idea of that identity that has been pinned on me time and time again. And I certainly pinned it on myself as well. I'm not saying that I wasn't out there with it. Right, right. But that, I mean, that leads to a different part of portraiture, which is the fact of having a career, which means that you then get viewed in a certain way. And that gets multiplied again and again. Like, I'm the punk poet, you know? And it's just like, why am I, I think one person once in the New York Times described me as a punk poet, and it stuck. And I think it was a way to, to not say dyke, a way to not talk about class, mm. and, and there's somehow or other, so there's something funky about this person, and we don't quite know how to, but it's sort of like, and it just kind of, and then, and then you're sort of always in this position of sort of having to unload that perception. Yeah. You know, there's a portrait, there's a picture of you out there you know, which then you have to kind of figure out. I mean, like you were associated with this body of work. You're that, that dyke. Well, every article starts out with, in the early 90s, Catherine Opie carved pervert in her chest. Exactly. You know, it's right, like, right. yeah, I did do that. Right. <laughs> and it's certainly an important photograph, but it's not the sum of who I am. Right. And that's always the curious thing about what happens with work. You know, you make iconic work that you don't think is iconic, but becomes iconic. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had to experience that with your writing as well. It's like the kind of perception that's placed within your bodies of work is something that you shouldn't have control over. You should only have control over the work that you make. I, in a way, you're powerless over your work being successful. You yeah. Know? And so... Um, like, my next book is actually a, a memoir of a dog, 
you know? And so, and I thought, you know, like I got a lot of attention from my last books. So I thought, I'm on easy street now. I'm just going to have such a need, a great new agent. I'm just going to sell my book to a lot of money. I'm just like, it's just all that suffering is over. And we go out with this dog book and they're like, what? Because they were like, this doesn't build on the audience that she has created. Right. You know? It's sort of like, this is not the next book. We want the, We want more of that. Yeah, they want, they always, yeah, they want what is known. It's like my stumps. I love my stumps. And you want to you talk about I want to, Kathy makes stumps, and I don't know, I saw, I saw one, but. I please. make ceramic stumps, I do. I'm a ceramic, I'm a ceramicist, yeah, I can't even say it. Yeah. Uh, First of all, it, how did you get there? Well, I came out, I came out in October on the cover of Art in America with my hands making a ceramic stump. And of course, uh -huh. people think of it as just a photograph. And certainly, I made photographs of my stumps because there is no way my gallerist wants to talk to me about my stumps. I mean, it's just, it's not to be spoken of, right? It's like, the, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, so you don't want to talk about my stumps. So I'm going to photograph my stumps in such a beautiful way that you're going to have to deal with my stumps. Uh -huh. But it's, you know, it's my postmenopausal moment, my stumps. What does that mean? <laughs> I want to know. I mean, like, I, know, I, mean, I feel like I could just accept that glibly. But what do you mean by your postmenopausal moment? Well, you know, menopause is hard, right? And menopause isn't something that people really talk about. I mean, you're talked to as a, as a child when you're about ready to get your period, right? It's like your mom goes like, you know, this thing is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to menstruate. And then back in, you know, at that time, it's like I'm, I'm 56 years old. So you all of a sudden you get, uh, for those in the younger audience, you are so freaking lucky. But you're handed this gigantic pad that you like literally like have to like, like strap onto you with this weird elastic band. And you, if you think you're kind of a boy and yeah. you've never had to wear a bra before and you go around as kind of like a tomboy and you're right. like happy with that, you're just like, ah, it's the worst thing ever. So you go through that, you get used to it, it's fine. It served me well, I got to have a child. You know, all my butch friends were like, oh my God, you're pregnant? Like what? Like how can you do that? And I'm like, huh. well, I am a woman. <laughs> and my body can do it, you know? But then all of a sudden, your mom doesn't, nobody really talks to you about the fact that what happens when you don't bleed anymore? Mm -hmm. And then blood has been such a substance within your life. Right. So the stumps for me is almost like a castration. Whoa. You know? Huh. It's, yeah. It's, it's the, the, the photograph on the cover of Art in America has like my hand inside the hole. So it's like the, you know, kind of almost like, self-effing yourself. Sorry, right, I can say right. the word here, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but it's like, it has like a lot of like so things weird. in terms of what it means to kind of face your own mortality to a certain huh. extent, even though it's only menopause. And that's what the latter portraits are about, where the figures emerging out of the black as well as the new abstract landscapes. They all have to do with like the, versus me looking at the external world, I've now gone utterly internal. And it's almost that these artists and photographs and portraits, the people are kind of emerging from almost a dream state with me, as well as the stumps are almost this dream state. 
and they go on fire, they do different things, but they've never been shown just as objects on their own. That seems really tragic, though. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like as artists, you know, you just want the next space to be the next space. And then there's this reality of the marketplace, which, which kind of objects to that in some way. Um, but I, think, I just think what you're saying about um, menstruation and, and um, menopause is really interesting. It's sort of like, it's not, it's not talked about as, I mean, like in the history of art, you know, like this Picasso's blue period, and there's all these, you know, like it's sort of like, right. and, and this incredibly, um, I mean, just awesome event that happens in a female life should be the, 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 the well-known marker of a new period in an artist's life, literally. Right? Yeah. Because if it's not a big deal, you know, like, I mean, how could it not be a big deal? You know, and yet there's sort of there's such a, a taboo to, I think, discussing it. You know, and I think I feel like I was just sort of weaving it into my work in a certain way. And well, you were going to say something. I want to. No, no, I wasn't. I was listening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I just feel like I mean, uh, my bleeding was how I knew myself for so many years. I mean, nobody told me it was coming. I didn't have the good experience of like I just kind of went down to the bathroom once in junior high and just this this incredible thing was happening in my body and I like passed out. So you like had a carry moment with it? I had, yes. <laughs> and I didn't go to school that day and kids thought I got kept back. It was the last day of school. It was, just, it was the whole thing was horrendous, you know? And it was like this, like, what am I now and who am I? But on the other side of it, when it ends, what I realized it was like I didn't know myself because I felt like the way I knew myself, I knew myself in my sexuality. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like, around this part of the month, I'm really horny. Around this part of the month, I feel sort of like this around here. I mean, I just kind of, there was a shape. And mm -hmm. suddenly without menstruating, the shape was gone. And I was like, so who, you know, it was just like it was open. And it was a completely new, and I just t sort of had to figure out, in a way, I almost think of myself as becoming, I, if I think about my photographs, t taking my, my photographs, yeah. some of these, well, that's... Oh, actually, there you go. We're starting there. Really, that's just a um, the, picture of the, my dog. That's the title, the cover of my dog book, and I didn't even take that. Um, See, it's going to fuck us up when we look back. I know, because now we're just going to be looking at the words, which we wanted you guys to do, because yeah. it's good to look at words and then have flashing images. Yeah, but they just sort of interrupt the... <laughs> <laughs> we really designed this really well for you guys, right? No, it's great, it's great. <laughs> look at us, we're talking about menstruation right. and menopause, right. and, <laughs> and you're rolling along with us. <laughs> so I didn't know, I mean, like, I just felt like I just needed needed kind of a name for this new space and it's, it seems like it's open and it's landscaping and I think it was one of the things that like luckily technology you know like gave me a camera to be carrying all the time mm. with my cell phone and it's all like I always like taking pictures and they had pictures had something to do with sadness but it just became a new way of like of like I travel a lot and I just take pictures as a sort of visual notebook and it just seems like in response to this kind of open space and this different relationship to time, you know? Does it change having a cell phone with you and taking pictures? Does it change the way that you write? Because one of, one of the journeys I did, as you know, I went from Korea, the port of Busan to the port of Long Beach and made this body of work called 12 Miles to the Horizon. Mm -hmm. And the one book I packed with me was uh, the Iceland book. Um, and I wanted to be on the journey at sea when I read that piece because it's about wandering and it's about mm -hmm. a journey. But in, 
Do you find that now taking pictures of your wandering, it changes the way that you hear it or write it in your, in your mind? No, I think, it's, I think it's about getting to do something extra. It's sort of like, it's, I mean, I guess it's another, it's a second way of describing the wandering and sort of sharing it with the world in a way. I mean, I think the pitches were always there, but they were invisible, mm -hmm. you know? Because I think when you're writing, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like you're writing the score to a kind of journeying all the time, whether it's from memory or what's, I mean, obviously if you go, if I go look at your work and I'm writing about your work, I'm writing a score to something that you will see, you know? But it's sort of like if I'm writing about something that, um, that is not, not visual, then it's sort of like, how do I let people into the work? Sometimes I draw a picture in the writing and sometimes I just, you know, like, it's sort of like you're, um, you're trying to make people guess the picture without, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like you're kind of, you're trying to um, prompt it in a way. Do you use photographs at all to help you write? Do you go back to an image to then, or do you allow it to still remain just within your head? They hang out with me. Like I, like I in a period of time when I'm working on a book, there'll be just pictures that I'll see. And I just mm -hmm. feel like I know these are part of that book. And so I pin them up to where I'm writing, you know? And so I just, they just, they're part of the repetition of the book. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the book, I'll literally describe the picture, you know, but it's more like, they're more like markers on the road. They create the road in a way, oh. because the thing is, you know, writing a book, you're going forward all the time in a way. And I just like, and so those pictures keep remi remind you where mm -hmm. you are. Yeah, because I'll do something structurally where I'll start a certain structure for a body of work. And then that structure remains for maybe many years, like the political landscapes that you guys are seeing behind you. You know, that started first with the immigration march, May Day march in LA, mm -hmm. but then the format had to continue to try to begin to think about that in relationship to idea of landscape and politics and people filling a space and what it means to take up space, what it is in terms of our civic duty. And I don't even think civics are taught anymore, which was like really a huge part of my education growing up. But that, that's, that it's really important for a structure to remain within that so that when I dip back into it, I already have a place to kind of create a format to continue the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'll dip in and out of ideas and bodies of work where sometimes it's a 20-year body of work. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting, like that idea of structure or how you're you know, triggered. Like when I did the photograph at the Tea Party rally, I knew that I structurally it was the same of the Obama inauguration where the teleprompter is showing them getting out of the car on the parade route, but I'm still stuck in the mall because they locked us down in there. Mm -hmm. And so there's things structurally that happen so that as soon as I saw that out there in the, you know, at the Tea Party rally, like kind of compositionally, I was like, okay, this has to go with this in my head. Mm -hmm. So there is a way of like, kind of dipping in and out always within creating this language around the kind of things that I explore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, which I imagine is the same thing with being a poet and a writer. Yeah, but I'm, I guess I'm thinking about time in a way. So in a way, there's like a big ideal show that nobody ever sees but you. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the archive, oh fuck. No, there I said yeah. the word. <laughs> so. Where is, is there an archive? Where is the archive? Well, this it's, is it's, uh, all the negatives are housed at UCLA in my office because it's the safest place for them. Mm -hmm. It's temperature controlled. I have no windows. There's a sprinkler system so that if a fire happened, it's much safer than being in my home or in my studio. Mm -hmm. And then there's just, you know, I mean, I started printing in my dark room in 1975. I had built my own dark room. So there's boxes and boxes of prints from high school, like on up. I mean, mm -hmm. how does that feel? Um, comforting. Huh. It's really comforting. Yeah. I don't have the greatest memory, and I've always felt that, you know, it's, it's interesting thinking, because I, I'm a big reader. I'm a very voracious reader. Mm -hmm. Like, I love the good novel, you mm -hmm. know. And, but I often think of my body of work as this kind of big American novel that, that represents my life in these different moments and touchstones. And so to go back into the archive and all of a sudden start looking at things in the 80s, I'll see that all of a sudden I'm structurally doing the same thing now, mm -hmm. yeah. but I didn't realize it until the memory was sparked. And so it's, it's it, you know, even with the first self-portrait, like, wandering around Sandusky, Ohio, photographing everything is often how I'm wandering now. Yeah. So it hasn't changed that much. It's just become more sophisticated. Right, right, right. But, um, but I think it's hard for us to break our own rules as artists or writers. Like you do, you, you become more sophisticated with mm -hmm. it in experimentation and you try to visually obviously mix things up, or I do with making mm -hmm. images, but that there is a very concise way of uh, trying to create an interpretation um, in terms of the language that I'm trying to bring through both historically and personally within the bodies of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just at this funny point where it's like poets at some point you sell all your shit to a college library. Oh yeah, did you do that? I'm doing it, I'm in the middle of it. Oh wow, what library gets to have? It's, it's a, it's, I think it's a toss up between Yale or Texas. Ah. Texas. <laughs> I, I know, I never thought Texas, and now that I have a house in Montfort, I'm like, Texas. But, you know, it's kind of like the price is right. It's like, who's, you know, who's gonna be offered the most? And then, right. you know, and then it's, but, it, but it's, it's this very mortal, mortal thing, because it's sort of like they, you know, these people go into your, I have all my stuff in storage units, uh -huh. you know, and they go in, and then, you know, like, I'm not even there, and they're like, go, I'm like, I don't know what's in there, you know, and then they, and then they find these personal things, like in notebooks. Um, well, all my notebooks are there. I've yeah. notebooks since age ten. You know, that's weird. That that is the. Um, oh, so that's yeah, yeah. So we're both making sense of our world through Absolutely. the same craft that we've kept on through our lives. Everything yeah. comes from the notebook. Yeah. You know? And it's sort of like, and I didn't. I shared a room with my sister, and so I have no privacy. And I'll just, I just remember sitting in the hall, you know, under a light and writing in my notebook for the first time and thinking, this is it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I found some space, you know. So what's the difference between a notebook and a journal? No difference. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. They're all, yeah. And, they, and then they, you mean like, it's. Or sort of, a diary. Yeah. Did you ever think of it as a diary? Or did sure. you think, yeah. Sure. I mean, I would use all these. I'm words. just trying to imagine the 10 year old self with the braids, like sitting and writing. Right, you know? right, right. I think I totally <laughs> thought, dear diary. Uh huh. You know? Oops, sorry. <laughs> there goes the deep voice. Yeah. And I think it was some insurance company giveaway notebook. You know what I mean? It was like, I think I remember a deer on the cover and, you know, 1960. And it was just like, you know, like half a page and a, you know, an empty space. And, and, you know, and so there's been rhythms in that because you'll find some notebook, like a composition notebook, and I'll be like, this is what I use, you know, and new habits with, like, for a long time, it's like where I am when I crack open the new notebook is the name of the notebook. So the current notebook is Big Bend, you know. And then my mother died, and I just yeah. felt, felt like Big Bend is like the name of her death. You know, I didn't know that this notebook would hold her death. But weirdly, my dad died in 1961, and he didn't even get mentioned in the notebook. You oh. know what I mean? I was oh, like, that's interesting. How could that be that I didn't think my dad's death? So you actually went back to try to find how you wrote about your yeah. dad's death with no. going through your mother's recent passing? I mean, no. I mean, years earlier, really, I thought yeah. I must have written something good about his death. It was like, I didn't even mention it. But I was still saying pizza at lunch at school this week. Hmm. Yum. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> Exclamation point. Right. But, uh. it's, but then the mortality is just like at this moment having all these, they'll like, well, we've got 70, box, 70 feet, they measure it. They're like 70 feet of, of boxes of correspondence. We've got like 10, 12 boxes of notebooks. That's really great. You wow, know, it's very weird. Does the uh, does the money go up? Oh, yeah. at, at, with the measurement? Yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. Because <laughs> we follow kind of like the big print. It's a little bit more expensive. Because <laughs> you follow patterns, and like you know, Allen Ginsberg when he sold, we all followed when he sold his papers to Stanford. He got a million dollars, and it was like, and around that time, you heard that the more the better. Just put everything in there, you know, and cre create weight, bulk. You know, so since then it's it's gotten even more. You know, like my dog walker says, you know, twelve fifty five p water, no poop, or so. You know, and like throw it in the archive. Uh, like, I love it. You know? I had the best dog walker note because I never had to have a dog walker. But when I went uh, moved to New York to teach at Yale, I had a dog walker, and I get home to the note, and it says. Curiously, when Nika went out, she did this and this, but curiously, she pooped out a completely whole intact dollar bill today. <laughs> and I was like, and it's like one note that I wish I had saved, but I'm not a saver of notes, but I still, it's just in my head, like thinking like, Nika pooped out a dollar bill? <laughs> well, you know, what is this? Was it a Brooklyn dollar bill? Like, what kind of dollar bill was this? Maybe she's you know? just making money. Was it wrapped around a chicken leg because then she grabbed every chicken leg off right. the street she could find? So, but yeah, I have no plans for my archive. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. Huh. It must be with photographers and artists, somebody. Well, there's some place to put it. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, most of the work, when you make it as work, it goes out in the world, and that's the work. Yeah. But then there is all the work that is there to the making of the work. It's like editing. Yeah. And so I'm sure that there's a place that somebody that, that would go to. But I can't believe with a big-ass career like you have that this isn't something that you don't already know. No, I don't. I have no idea. I've, never, I've thought about uh, uh, basically menopause, but apparently I haven't thought <laughs> that. 
Menopause, the <laughs> menopause, yes, archive, no. no. We all open it to questions. Yeah, I should we end on there? that? <laughs> we can open it to questions. It could be dogs pooping out dollar bills. It could be menopause. Uh, no, any kind of questions. Where we're, we're I, I, I'll start with a question. And yeah. Can y'all speak to the TV show Transparent and the notion of portraiture in a still photograph, still photograph versus, you know, it, when a character is created based on you in a TV show and those, those ideas? Yeah. Huh. I mean, they Do you have, not want to? They, well, you know, we want to. We want to. I'm we curious don't. because this is, <laughs> yeah. you know, I have known Eileen for a very long time. And it was really interesting because I remember when the character who's uh, basically Eileen is, ba you know, it's Eileen, but it's it's uh, Cherry Jones mm -hmm. uh, playing you. Right. And it really, like, it bugged me. Mm -hmm. Like, and it was so interesting because also I, while watching it one time, and I like Transparent quite a bit as a, as a show, but all of a sudden I realized my work was in it and I didn't know that. And I was like, oh. I think that's my photograph in the background. And it was so odd because it was in Who Plays You, your, the house. It was in her house, right. In her house. Yeah. So what, I have to ask you, I mean, it's a yeah. good question in terms of I've, I've made portraits of you. Uh -huh. You know, I know that a lot of people who sit for me don't necessarily say that it feels like them. Um, and that's what happens a lot of times with people who have portraits taken. Mm -hmm. But then you have this other portrait of you now right. that's the, that is, uh, you know, it's not a fictionalized character. She is representing you in this right. show, and it was your words in the show. Right, right. So how did, what did you think about that representation of you? Well, it's really weird because I feel like part of, part of what's, I think I've never thought about it until this moment, but I think part of what's peculiar about being represented in a TV show like that is that why are they doing that? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and I know that like apparently the way it happened was they were they were just writing the show, and there was a lesbian poet academic, and then somebody in the writing room knew me, and they were like, "Sounds like Eileen," you know. And then, <laughs> weirdly, I was on a panel with Jill, so then she met me, so it was sort of like it started to become it morphed towards me. It's sort of like it wasn't me originally, it became me. It was the idea of you without it being you. But, but so the thing that's weird is that the fact, their decision to make it more like me was a desire to make their character realer. You know what I mean? It was like hmm. somehow or other, for what, I mean, like, that's a little strange, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, why, why do you need it to be realer, you know? But then they, then they kind of, you know, then they got me to kind of help them supposedly. You know what I mean? Like what, what I really gave them that made it realer was my poems. Right. Like they, I let them use my poems. They, they bought, they rented my poems, you know? Oh, um, I didn't get my work rented. Well, I know, it's not weird. <laughs> <laughs> you can rent a poem, but you can't rent it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, not for a whole lot, you know? That's, that's weird, because you can't buy a poem. You can buy a Kathy mm -hmm. Opie picture. You know, but you don't have to pay at all for it yeah. to be on television. No, you're right. So po poems should be rented if they're being used on exactly. TV. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but the part about me was weirder because I think that they, um, so they, they sent me like pictures of the clothes that they thought she would wear. And then I thought, no, no, I would never. I was like, the jeans should be tighter. The shirt should be tighter. I wouldn't wear a vest. And then they went ahead and, and dressed her just like the way they 
decided to. Wanted to. Yeah, yeah. they totally ignored me. So it was very weird. They were kind of like, Wheeler, meh, no. And we, like, <laughs> we like our version. We like the version. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting because it was almost, uh, I, I love this show and I'm glad they did the character, but having it linked so closely to you and with hearing your words, um, it, it was hard for me because I felt that it was an exaggeration and that, you know, there, and, and I've had that where people have come up to me and they've met me or something, they have this whole idea of how I am and then they're like, you're so nice. Right. And it's like, well, <laughs> did you think I was going to be mean? Like, <laughs> right. But it's, you know, it's, it's these perceptions. And, but to have a character so linked to y your actual words, but that it was, in my opinion, ill-perceived in relationship to your true personality. Right. It was, it was, I had a lot of conflict around it. I mean, I think what, what's weird is <laughs> I, I did. It's like when we, we were talking earlier about the whole issue of like the way the art world gets represented in movies and in television, or the way lesbian culture gets represented in movies. Or it's sort of like, I still wonder, it's like, why do they want it? Because they don't ever really want it. Mm -hmm. They just kind of want it. You know, they want it to be kind of about that because then those people will sort of watch it, maybe, but they don't really want to know what those people think or feel because then they're sort of saying, sort of controlling or managing it too yeah. much. You know, it's sort of like, it's very strange. It's like wanting to have it be kind of like that, but not so much that it becomes your work, not mine. You know, but they dip into the cliche too easy. Well, that's what, that's and what that's what trying. bothers me. And I feel like you and I yeah. have been cliche busters. Like that. Like yes. I'm very proud of that. Right. right. Like you make something of a surfer, and the surfer's not surfing; they're waiting for the waves, which is actually a big part of surfing. Exactly. You know, creating a different kind of iconography. We both do that with the kind of language that we build. Right. And then to have it succumb to this kind of Hollywood um, position where, yeah, it's great, it's re reaching a, a wider audience. I'm sure that it potentially sold more books for you, uh -huh. but it's still not representational of who you are as a human being. Right, right. But that happens anyway with people's work. I mean, I can't say that, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm, as you, I mean, you guys have been laughing as I've been talking tonight. There's really not that much humor in my work, but I think I'm funny. <laughs> so, you know, it's a funny thing, like ideas of representation, and it's a slippery slope to a certain extent. Right. Well, I think this is like the most interesting thing in the world, because I feel like art, in, no matter what materials you use, I think art starts inside. It's an arising, mm -hmm. you know, there's sort of like something before the work, and that makes the work, you know? So I think if you're going to represent represent something like say transparent's really great on Jewishness because Jill's Jewish and she knows what it's like to be in LA to be Jewish to be living in that family so she's you're in there you start from the right. inside and you come out you know and so the thing is if you're going to represent something you really have to, to work with people who start from the inside you have to get the insiders because yeah. it's like I can make jokes about dykes I can make jokes about working class people you know, it's sort of like it's the way white people, somebody white decides that it's cool for them to go, hey, nigger. You know, it's like, no, uh, no, black people get to do that. We don't get to do that. You know, it's like who gets to make the joke. Right. It's sort of like when you say I'm funny, but my work isn't. It's sort of like because you're alive. 
Yeah. You know, it's sort of like you went there and you left that, you know, but you're here. Yeah. And it's like that shaking thing is what's, you know, and it's like somehow it's sort of like there isn't, there isn't a, um, there isn't a kind of a, you know, there isn't the same, like when I, years ago, somebody wanted to make a film of Chelsea Girls and they started me writing the screenplay and they said, nah, and they gave it to a real screenplay writer. And what she did <laughs> over 10 years was put all the cliches back. Oh, you know, it's yeah. sort of like they gave me, there was no dad in the book. They gave me an Archie Bunker racist dad because I had to have a racist dad. How could it be working class if I don't have a racist dad? You know, and slowly she was a dyke, but she had to be a femme because we're interested in lesbians being sort of feminine, not mm. like some, you know, tomboy dyke. That's not working, you know? Oh. So it was kind of like they had, they fixed it and made it be like dumb. No, they unfixed it. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So. No, that was one answer to a question. Okay, do we have other okay. questions? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do we have any questions? Any questions in here? You, you know, can so leave, by the way, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any, any? Yeah, I have So, about, uh, are you writing a screenplay now for the Amazon series? For which? The Amazon series. The Amazon series. No, for, no. Which Amazon series? Or, well, are you're, you doing, did you just say you're doing Chelsea Girls? No, it's a movie. It's going to be an Amazon they, movie. Yeah, like, yeah. Are like, you doing the screenplay? I am. And how do you find translating uh, your story into a screenplay within the well, it's exactly the same problems we're talking about. It's sort of like how to not, you know, like how to keep what I feel like is the inside of, of my book or the inside of my reality um, to keep it alive while I'm making short takes. You know, because the thing is, one thing, it's a book, so it's like you can't represent the whole book. You've got to find a little squirrely path it's sort of a like, it's like a hoarder's apartment. You have to have a little path through all the piles of stuff, you know? And so I'm trying, I have to write that path, but still make you know that the piles are there. So it's, it's really tricky, you know? No, because I feel like, you know, I mean, like my, my business is making decisions. You know, every time I do a reading, it's like I can't read the whole book. So right. I'm just like, how do I feel tonight? And I'll read these six or ten poems, you know, and I'll read them in this order rather than that order, you know, and in between I'll say this. So it's, it's very much like what I already do, but I have to, I feel like the trick in doing anything new is to remember that mm -hmm. it is like doing what you already know, but just doing it in a different form, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. This person. Can you talk about yeah. Early and, and really exposed in a way. Can you talk about how you how you navigated that um, personally and professionally? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that there's uh, you know it, it's interesting. It, it's it's a different kind of path. Like when I was in graduate school, I was doing work on the master plan community of Valencia, California. And I was really, you know, and before that I had made street photographs in San Francisco. And my undergraduate thesis was the way that women interacted with men in kind of the financial district of San Francisco. And this was like 1983. So the first business pantsuit was kind of happening. And uh, having women define their notion of success 
versus men's notion of success. And so I've always been really interested in these binaries and partly probably from always being assumed that I was uh, male. And, uh, but I think that um, one of the things that kept happening as I was studying with really radical professors at CalArts actually, uh, and they kept saying like, come on, we know like, that you did all of this like radical leather work for Honor Backs magazine. Why didn't you bring this to grad school? And I said, well, um, I don't live in San Francisco anymore. I live in Valencia, California, and this is what's out my back door. And I actually think that talking about master plan communities and uh, the way that they're structured is a way to still have a queer voice. And so, you know, often I was pushed to this place of always having a queer voice, but then in terms of the decimation of my community and the, uh, the politics of the time of censorship uh, around the NEA and so forth and, 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 and um, the NEA 4, you know, when I graduated from CalArts, I then started making being and having and all the portraits. And, uh, and I, didn't, I, I didn't have a public uh, platform at that point. I wasn't <laughs> represented by galleries. I wasn't showing. But the work immediately started to uh, be exhibited. And the first place that pervert ever was exhibited was at the 1995 Whitney Biennial. First place. That was very public for me. <laughs> I was like, whoa. You know, and you have to realize I made this piece in my community. Like I was in San Francisco, surrounded by my friends, and we did this piece. And I knew that it, I was making a self-portrait in a piece. But I didn't necessarily think about the platform. So um, I think that, that in a certain way, the bravery came out of my utter love of community and also how um, horrific uh, homophobia has been within my life. And uh, in some ways completely, uh, you know, in the same way as racism, not understandable, but understandable, but it's just exhausting. Like when I did Lesbian Domestic, you might have seen a photograph behind you of a washer and dryer. Whenever I lecture, I say, this is a lesbian washer and dryer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Usually people laugh, but every once in a while I get that question going, excuse me, but what is a lesbian washer and dryer? And I'm like, it's the same as your washer and dryer. That's the point. I have the same appliances that you have. You know, and I think bravery really comes out of the fact that um, I believe in being able to create a history and a history of my time and the complexity of my time. Mm -hmm. And to do that is you have to be true to yourself. And your work has to have those truths of your whole being. Um, otherwise, it's not very interesting. I mean, I, I guess I just, I just feel like, um, I feel like just to make, keep making work is brave. You know, I feel like in the most general ways is mm. where I actually think, if I, if, is there any way I'm brave? I think it's the, brave enough to keep being an artist. You know, I feel like um, it was brave of me when I was 24 to move to New York to be a poet. That seemed, you know, like I was just like, you know, I, I came from a background where nobody expected me to be an artist and certainly not an artist in a, in a ludicrously non, you know, conventional career path like being a poet. You know what I mean? Like to, to, to leave my comfortable little Massachusetts, New England community um, 
where I would have been depressed and died of, of alcoholism probably, you know, and bring that to New York. That was brave. It was brave to kind of just go into the void, you know. And I just think to keep working for years, you know, like whether somebody wanted the work or didn't want the work, whether you felt, whether I, I made something, I did something, I got something, but I didn't get enough, and I was still having to work too hard. And I mean, so I think that kind of just to keep being an artist in time to me is incredibly brave. To, to, to just do it because you need to do it and whether somebody cares or not. You know, like that's, that seems, and I think perhaps if I think about sexuality, you know, I mean, like I, I think when I started to realize that, you know, like that it was a, a live or die thing, that I had to kind of be who I was and I had to, becoming as a person was more brave than becoming as a person in the writing. You know what I mean? Like being a person is harder than, being a lesbian on the page, mm -hmm. you know? It's sort of like, in fact, I was better at being a lesbian on the page than being a lesbian in my life for a while, you know? Because it was sort of like, it was easy to write it because that's what I did, but it was like to live it and to, you know, and to, um, to become more it. open. To own, own it, too. Yeah, and to, and to kind of just to occupy space and not know what that looks like and to keep occupying it, you know? I mean, like, I think life is somehow, it's like art is a real support for my existence, you know, it's like writing makes me not crazy. You know, mm -hmm. writing keeps my balance. You know, it's like yeah. I, it's, it's my it's my moral. You know, mm -hmm. kind of. You know. Well, his was mine as Chelsea Girls, and his was the Chelsea Girls. So I'm, I'm making the da, which is a big, and it was really, you know, like the, the you know, like the title chapter in the book is, was, was really about, you know, like working for a poet who lived in the Chelsea Hotel and, um, and there being a lot of girls in the story and, and just realizing that, you know, I, I, I think I titled my book that in the 80s when it was like, it was very, you know, like everything was about appropriation. So you would like like find something someplace and use that. And that was like smart and sort of wry. But it was like, you know, it was, it was a way of occupying a myth that wasn't entirely mine, but kind of was. So it was sort of like, it was almost like writing on a photograph in a way, you know, it was like piggybacking, but, but thinking that, um, that I was a new version of that in some way. And I loved, I loved Warhol's films. You know, it's just like because mm. they were kind of like that yeah. you could waste time, that you could drone, you could, that, 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 you know, like normal reality could be stared at for extra long periods of time. Because I felt like, you know, it's sort of like there's all these rules in writing that everything has a point and you don't put a gun in the story unless that gun's gonna go off. And, and I just, and I, you know, and I just am much more in a writing um, reality where the, you waste some time. You put in some stuff that is just hanging around because that's what's happening. We're not, <laughs> you don't have to drink the water, it's just, you know, it's here. You know, the flowers are just here, you know, and stuff. And I saw like, art needs to have waste. And I saw, like, you know, and even using that title again meant, meant that it was just, I was reusing something, and mm. that seemed cool. There's somebody over there. Oh, yeah, it really does. Very, that does a lot. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, right? It's interesting. Interesting times we live in. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm speechless. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people felt. I remember election night. I had my living room full of people. It was supposed to be celebratory. You know, every, you know, I even made deviled eggs. It's very special if deviled eggs come into play. Right. Very Ohioan thing, you know. I had it all set up to cheer on and watch the first woman president get elected after the first African-American president was elected. Um, and then literally, my friends, as the night went on, like, they left to go lie in the backyard under, we have this big, huge Aleppo pine tree that's like 100 years old in our backyard in, in uh, LA, and it covered, it canopies the whole thing. And they were just like, I have to go be with the tree. <laughs> you know, like, it was like the response. And I remember Colbert looked like he was going to cry. Because the other thing I did is I tortured everybody at the house, and I, I switched from BBC to Fox to CNN to Comedy Central to this and kind of like curated the, the commentary of the night through my remote control. And... Um, <laughs> The best thing that happened after uh, the inauguration that raised uh, my spirits was uh, gathering with 750,000 people in downtown LA to protest, which you'll, you've seen a photograph of that up there tonight. Mm -hmm. And then a week goes by and I go, okay, what am I gonna do about this? What is my position? And I'm also teaching at UCLA at the time and students are crying you know, I'm having to deal with the incredible emotion of these young people that just can't even fathom what they've, uh, you know, begun to, like, realize. And, um, you know, and I just said that, listen, you know, politics are long, and the, the world is long in a certain way, hopefully for most of us, if we're lucky enough to sustain a long life. And after watching so many of my friends die of AIDS and breast cancer and everything who don't have a voice anymore, I said the best thing that you can do is figure out what your voice is, how to create that voice, how to participate in areas that you want to participate in. What does it mean to create a way not only through art but through action? And that the worst possible thing to do is curl up in a ball and hide. And so that's kind of my position. I mean, it was my mouth agape a lot of the times when I turn on the news, and I have turned it off a bit now. Like I kind of finally said, I've got to, I can't keep with this role of commentary. And so I've, I'm mainly only reading now. I turn on the TV very little every once in a while, but I find that reading the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, LA Times, and also the Financial Times in, in London are the way that I'm beginning mm -hmm. to create an ability to understand it um, in, a, in a wider kind of perspective and also in relationship to different ideas of representations within these uh, within newspapers. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of gone back to newspaper for mm -hmm. this one. Yeah. I mean, we're living in history. You know? Yeah. I mean, we always were. 
But I feel like it's like when something happens that, that you absolutely didn't expect to happen, and you find yourself in a space that, that is sort of in a way like no other you've ever been in before. You know, I mean, I, I, I think you, you, you have to keep trying to be awake. You know, I feel like this is political. Us being here and having a conversation, <laughs> you guys thinking this is a good thing to do today as opposed to something else, you know? I mean, I think every open public conversation that we have and we occupy in is really important, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like whatever, whatever is going on, whatever's troubling your like, local community and your, or your larger community has to be expressed, you know? Like the, 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 the conditions that we live in can't ever reduce us to silence, you know? I mean, I feel like in my heart, I feel like there was, I mean, in November, I thought, I think that we're having a coup d'etat. I think we're really having a coup. You know, and it's like that wasn't everybody's perception, but that's what I felt and what I saw. You know, I think, and I think when I, you know, like I was in, I was doing a reading in Wisconsin the night of the election. And so I, you know, like I did my reading, we had dinner afterwards, we all, you know, like went back to my hotel room, and I just assumed that what I expected was going to happen was going to happen, and then it's that did not happen, you know? And so the next day I was in, you know, a graduate stu study, you know, student um, lounge meeting with some students, you know, at the University of Wisconsin, and, and, and everybody was like this. And there was one woman who was African-American who said, you know, like, I feel like I'm, I'm like, I always knew it was just bad, you know, but now it like really shows, you know, and it's not just my problem, you know, it's like more people's problem than mine, you know, and I think that's like, that's, I mean, that's why it was astonishing to see so many people come to the streets the day of the inauguration, you know, and, and, and say something about it, you know, to say, you know, and I, and, um, I don't know, I, mean, I think we have to replace institutions if, if, if the government, if they, if they literally decide to, to stop the NEA, then I think we have to fund our own NEA. You know, yeah. we have to, if we want art, we have to pay for it. You know, which means also, you don't have to be rich to do that. You just have to support people, help people make stuff. You know, I mean, I feel like it's sort of like everything has to be put back, you know, and even built larger. You know, I mean, I, I've been reading The People's History of the United States, which I've owned for, I don't know how many decades and never read. You know, mm -hmm. when I read it, I think American history is filled with like corruption and squalor and, and, and you know, like it's sort of like it's, it's never been. And utter know. hope and inspiration as well that it's, you know, that's the, the one thing not to jump in with the optimistic voice. Um, but, you know, uh, all politics, <laughs> that's what I mean that we live, hopefully we live a long life. Uh -huh. And we will see again, you know, that that it shifts in and out. And I mean, we're in a really bad shift now, in my opinion. Some other people might be in the audience actually really happy about what's happening. But for myself, I'm not happy at all with the direction that the country <laughs> has gone in on this regard. Um, but my dad owned the largest political campaign collection in the country. That's all housed in the Smithsonian now. So I grew up with like the Lincoln, you know, uh, ferriotypes in my house, and the only uh, the only example of FDR in a wheelchair was putting a penny in his hand, and it would drop down in a slot in his wheelchair with a cast iron blanket covering him. And so I was constantly taught, and I grew up in a very Republican Ohio family, and. Uh, 
So, you know, I, I was grilled and taught uh, about American politics from the time I could even, re I mean, there's pictures of me as a young child on the carpet in Ohio, sorting through a big box of campaign buttons my dad got. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the, uh, the, the unusual thing about this is that it's not politics as usual. And there's a certain kind of renegade aspect to this because of the inexperience of the current administration, mm -hmm. that that is the thing that is the hardest for me and most horrifying. Because I've gone through Reagan, I've gone through Bush, I've gone through Nixon, we all have gone through a certain kind of conservatism. But this is a different kind of conservatism. Well, I think we're learning how our government works too. And, and part of the problem is it doesn't work. You know, I mean, it's just, I, I think that like, there's so many loopholes, there's so many gaps between this part and that part that if it was filled with this person as opposed to that person, you would get a really different result, you know? And I think we're sort of seeing that in action too. So, I mean, I think, you know, like, I mean, like really mundane things, like I think people need to, you know, run for local, like yeah. really small things that none of us think matter at all because it sort of builds all the way up, you know? and 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 really think about the form of government we have because I think it's really, it's a mess. It's and vote. I mean, the voting outturn is just, I mean, it's unbelievable. 50, only 55% of the I've people I've never showed up. voted. Never in my entire, and even the smallest one, like we just had one initiative in LA on the ballot that we had to vote on and it comes through and it's just like, okay, there's only one thing in this booklet, I better vote on it. And, mm -hmm. you know, but the kind of idea of like that kind of civic responsibility has left a lot of people because they feel this certain kind of hopelessness and that their voice doesn't matter, but it actually really, really matters on all levels of politics. Mm -hmm. If you want it to function a, a properly in relationship to a, a broader democracy. Right. And art is politics, and we just need art in schools really, 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 really bad because the thing is, kids are being silenced so early on. It's almost yeah. like the conversation begins when you're really young, and if you don't get to talk then, you don't talk later on. Yeah. yeah. Do we have another uplifting question after that one? <laughs> well, we're, unless our right, last, I see, I, you yeah. know, you were just stretching. Okay. Okay. I think last question over. Oh yeah, oh, we're, circling, we're circling back to menopause, everybody. I never hear any, you know, it doesn't get talked about. No, people don't talk about it. It's not a topic, and I wonder, I'm not sure what my question is, but I'm wondering if you feel like, your what is your voice, or what can you bring to the conversation in the stage of life that you're in now that you couldn't well, I think the, 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 you know, the work there, if you look at all the work and you look at the recent work, there is this internal position and the work is always what kind of the voice is. Uh, but obviously people would go to it and, and not think like, oh, Kathy's doing work about menopause right now because it is internal. But I get to publicly, when I lecture, begin to kind of talk about it, that blood was a substance, this last kind of gasp in my life after doing self-portraits that involved blood. And I, I'm interested in the substance. And um, so I, I think that, you know, that I don't really have any wisdom to impart except for the fact that in, in some ways, what Eileen was saying, that there's these different shifts within our life and the work begins to take that shift 
and then it allows you to begin to openly discuss where you might be at in relationship to that shift. And, uh, but uh, you know, I, it, I mean, I did, it was really interesting. I did a, a photograph that I now probably won't show. Um, I, ha I, I have very few men in my life. I have a son, but I haven't had, and I'm not a separatist whatsoever, but I haven't had a lot of men in my life, like close male relationships. And at one point I took this, I had this amazing trainer at UCLA and it was at the time that my body was changing and I was just kind of feeling everything and I felt like I needed to really get stronger. I was feeling kind of weak. And he was this beautiful, very tall, beautiful, like he could jump standing like this high onto a pedestal. Like he was CrossFit training. I mean, I did get a rotator cuff tear doing this, so <laughs> can't advise it, uh, you know, but I t he, he's, a, he's an African-American man, and I did this, one of the first photographs I did in this series, um, because he was so intimate with my body. It was five years of five days a week with this man. It was, it was as, as intimate as I could ever be with a man. But I did this photograph of him, and it showed in the first show at Regan Projects, and it, he, it, he's nude, and he's holding his penis, and he has blood, fake blood all over his hands. And I stupidly didn't think about the history of castration in the African-American community. I just thought that this man was bleeding for me, that he took my blood in a way and there was like this really like intense connection and I kind of I mean especially after what's happened at the Whitney uh, biannual and so forth I probably won't put that piece because an enormous amount of friends came up to me and was like Kathy like what is this piece about and then I was talking about it's like he now bleeds for me because I no longer menstruate and it was like this really personal, tender kind of exchange between me and this man who I allowed to have this really intimate bodily relationship with. And of course, that's not how the photograph is read. And so, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that it's gone from public view forever, but I'm certainly, it's, it's like tucked behind for right now because of the politics that we're at. This photograph from a white dyke shouldn't really be out in the world right now. It might end up being out in the world with this personal story more attached to it or once it's figured out, but not right now, not at this moment. Um, but it, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, this kind of transference or what happens to your body and then trying to express it visually. I mean, I, I just want to say that fem female aging is really powerful, you know, and, and that I have no patience anywhere in the world for any other message, you know? I mean, I feel like it's like there's so, such a, you know, a privileging of, of women at a certain moment in their lives, and other than that, you should be invisible. And I think both of us are lucky enough to have had careers and, and that, that keep going and have only gotten better since we've been older. And I feel like, I feel so lucky but I also feel like the, the big part of the politics of the message of my work and my existence is that, that you know, like with my female life, I'm, I'm you know, like 
I'm a multiple. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it's sort of like women don't get like put over here when you start. I mean, like, hey, I never did reproduce. I'm generative in other ways, you know, and I'm generative in this way. And that's the message, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't stop there and I didn't stop here. And I, you know, I just saw my own mother die this month. And it was amazing to see a woman live long and, and you know, like be strong. And, and I'm, I'm that and I want to be that. And I think there's no room in the culture for anything else. You know, and I think in some ways there was an inventory, there was an inventory on that in our culture with this election, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if not her, then somebody else. But, but you know, women are, are, women are first class citizens, you mm -hmm. know, and women have so much to say and, and, and we're saying it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good ending. <laughs> Thank you. That is a perfect place. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, Catherine Opie, Eileen Miles, everyone. There will be a book signing directly after the talk right now in the lobby. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>